Um, again, my name is David Billadeau, and I'm a family law attorney in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for joining us on this. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, the next chapter in what we've been doing, our recurring Tuesday, 1 p.m. Uh, COVID-19 impact seminar. Um, this particular topic today is going to be um, regarding 209A hearings, domestic violence, hear domestic violence hearings, um, emergency hearings, um, and the COVID impact, procedural and practical implications. Um, we were sorry, and I do want to apologize for the delay, and I'm sorry if people have a tight schedule today ending at two o'clock. We're going to try and go over um, a little bit to make up for that time. Um, Judge Christopher has been, she was on time for the record, let the record reflect that she was on time, um, but we've been having some technical issues, so hopefully that does get sorted out and she can just sort of jump in with us uh, wherever we're at in the seminar because we do really want to hear from her. So, so um, I'll start with thanking the panel for their patience and for their participation. Uh, as I just mentioned, um, Judge uh, Megan Christopher, who's an Associate Justice at the Suffolk Probate and Family Court uh, in Boston, uh, is part of the panel and hopefully she'll be on momentarily. We're also joined by uh, Dr. Nina uh, McConico, who is the Director of Child Witness to Violence Project in Boston, Massachusetts. We're also joined by Attorney Ann Gillespie uh, of the Law Office of Ann Gillespie in Newton, Massachusetts, and her uh, practice includes family law, uh, concentrating in domestic violence, um, high conflict uh, custody cases, and um, high asset net, net worth cases. Um, we're also joined by attorney Irina Inman, who is a family law attorney and a partner at Callahan, Baracco, Inman, and um, Bonzani, Bonzani um, PC, which is in Westboro, Massachusetts. Um, so thank you very much, everybody. And um, you know, I thought that this would be an important panel to have because I think, you know, the starting place for me when I was thinking about this issue, and I'm, I'm, I'd love to get the perspective of the panel, is, you know, I know when, when the doors closed to the public back in March, um, I know people were very concerned about, you know, well, how are 209A is going to be dealt with? How are how are any emergencies going to be dealt with? And I think folks were, at least this is my perspective, I think folks were assuming that the numbers would be through the roof and that there'd be tons of emergencies, tons of 209As, lots of custody issues, you know, coming into the court. And um, as far as I've been told and understood, that just really wasn't, I mean, there were certainly those cases, but it doesn't sound like there were anywhere near as much as folks sort of were anticipating. Is that is that what what you folks have seen in your in your practices as well? Can I chime in? Oh, hi, Judge. I can tell you that right now I'm I'm irritated with our our technology. Oh, I know. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. But um, in any event, I kind of check the numbers. And um, first of all, it was interesting to see that uh, I just started looking at how many had been filed in Suffolk County by a date certain. And um, in my hair tearing process, I seem to have mislaid my tiny sticker with all the numbers on it. But roughly, I, I just heard the 50th uh, restraining order filed in Suffolk in 2020. Uh, in 2019, by that same approximate date in middle of July, we had heard 120. We had had 125 initial filings. Wow! But strangely, in 2018, we'd only had 95. So you can see there's variation from year to year that's not insignificant. Uh, 95 and 125 between 2018 and 2019. I can't immediately perceive any reason for that. That biggest swing. Mm -hmm. um, just that it's sort of the way it goes. Uh, but up through March, we were more or less um, on the mark uh, for the whole probate and family court on all filings, including um, abuse prevention orders. One of the things that's interesting is, is that our statistics, I do not believe, capture domestic relations protective orders. I have not had anyone bring yeah. domestic relations protective <clears throat> orders. And, um, and also, just anecdotally, I have heard from people, and this is real, 
you know, no science anecdote. Um, I have heard from people who have done uh, judicial response that there has been a greater um, a greater press on the judicial response system, which isn't, I guess, too surprising under the circumstances, and um, and that uh, uh, those cases, for the most part, will get siphoned over to the district court or the municipal court rather than being returnable to the probate court. So while we may not have seen the numbers, it may be that the district court has seen those numbers. I don't know. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, Anne and Irina and, and Nina, what, what have you been seeing in your practices? So um, thank you very much, Judge. Um, really helpful to hear that. So uh, in speaking with a lot of, of the domestic violence counseling and uh, programs who have been hard at work, they're, they're hearing from survivors of domestic abuse that in fact the, and then I've also spoken with law enforcement and some EMT or ambulatory uh, service, urgent care services. And there, there's a very significant uptick actually in uh, the kind of uh, domestic assault and domestic abuse calls that people are receiving uh, at the law enforcement level, which is possibly very different, it sounds like it may be. And in fact, in speaking with domestic violence programs, what I'm hearing is that survivors are feeling very trapped, which is not unfortunately that surprising given the dynamics of domestic abuse and that they are feeling like they're under surveillance, that they're being tracked, even if they try to go to a grocery store. So there are a lot of those access issues that are related to the dynamics uh, that COVID didn't create, uh, but obviously may exacerbate. And I also think there's a lot of lack of access issues that I'll let Nina and Irina f uh, you know, address. What I'm seeing and hearing is that folks are panicked that they can't get out of the house to go to the court, not that the court may not be available. Yeah, I would agree with that, Anne. Um, all of the things that you had just mentioned around survivors, you know, potentially feeling trapped um, and that there's some reality to them kind of being you know surveyed and um, and trapped by their potential you know abusive partners um, and that also from our perspective you know there may be times where um, that that perpetrating or abusive partner they're they're they may not necessarily be in the house but definitely making their presence known um, and so it makes it more challenging and difficult for a survivor if they were going to try to file a protective order to, to do so. Um, I also think that there's some, some myths and kind of some miscommunication that has been occurring in various systems where um, there are some survivor victims who have been told that it's not actually possible to file restraining orders right now in the midst of COVID because either, you know, courthouses are closed um, or they're, they're not hearing, they're not hearing those cases. Um, so there's, there's that piece too. Um, and then I, I think the last piece is around access to services. And so if you, if you are a victim of IPV and you are wanting to um, leave or engage in services to increase your safety right now because of COVID, there's a lack of places where you could actually go to do that. And so, um, you know, shelters have been impacted by, by COVID and kind of the, you know, the, the availability and kind of who, who can come in and who can't. Um, I know that there's a, a lack of shortage around hotels and motels that are that are used for those purposes. Um, and so I think that that has just been complicating the issue that COVID didn't necessarily create those, but it has made it much more challenging. Irene, are you seeing something similar in your practice as well? So um, I actually usually handle more of probably the defense side of, of restraining orders. And I mean, I guess it tracks, but it's definitely seemed slightly more quiet with regards to restraining orders. We're definitely seeing more of them absolutely pushed to the district court as opposed to in probate and family court. I see. Um, so they're really coming to us after we already have potentially something already issued, but we've definitely seen, uh, I don't want to say a significant drop, but there has been a lighter load of restraining orders handled or brought mm -hmm. into the office, probably from the March to 
to current timeline. And then obviously I can go in to discussing some of the issues that we're facing once we get into court on a return date. Yeah, let, let's segue there. Why don't we stick with you for a minute if you, if you don't mind. Um, yes. And when we can jump to, I, I wanna hear from Judge Christopher too on this, um, but can you tell us, Irina, so what is the procedure for, um, the current procedure for getting in on either, uh, well, I guess also maybe an, an embedded question here is, is there a difference between a, a regular, you know, an emergency hearing and a 209A emergency hearing? Um, can you can you walk us through that process in the district court and, and talk about how it might be distinguished from pre-COVID procedures? Yeah, it does seem that they're trying to push as much of the initial hearings as on the phone as possible. Um, and then what's happening from there, obviously they're getting return dates that it's almost, um, how do I say this? There's a complete lack of consistency throughout the district courts. There's been notices through Zoom that end up being teleconference hearings. Um, that happens pretty consistently. You're also seeing, as opposed to, you know, more of our probate and family court practice, where if we're going to be on a call or on a Zoom call, there's a specific time scheduled and you are, your parties are the ones that are carved out for that time period. It seems like a cattle call. So I've had myself as well as many, several colleagues just on the phone all day, um, waiting for their turn to be called, listening to everybody else's restraining orders. So there are several complications that are occurring with that. So, sorry, um, Irina, just one oh, quick, but sorry. I just want to clarify, no, no, I just want to clarify what you just said. Yes. So for the district court, you're saying people call into the conference line and there might be 20 or 30 people all just sitting on the line together, not necessarily in a waiting room style that, you know, I know the probate and family court is, is starting to do these waiting room style calls that you're saying that's not the case with the district court? That's correct. Um, I mean, and, and I can only imagine from the judge's perspective, you know, making sure everybody's on mute, who's not supposed to be speaking at that moment to, to clarify things. But what seems to happen at these return hearings is that the judge will start out, um, even if an evidentiary hearing is requested, and simply start out by saying, okay, well, we're going to discuss by representation and see where we go from there. Um, parties have asked for evidentiary hearings, uh, asked for Zoom hearings, asked for in-person hearings. There is procedurally a right to request an in-person hearing if, um, if a party chooses to do so, and that's been basically pushed off for a period of a month or two, and hopefully you know, we'll see necessarily what materializes in that month or two timeline as to when they've been scheduled for an in-person evidentiary hearing. Um, I know a lot of attorneys have attempted to submit evidence in advance um, through the use of the clerks. Uh, it's really been hit or miss as to how that's handled. And, and again, I don't necessarily know how to, there's a great difficulty really in having a full and proper fair hearing where we're at right now. So yeah. I think what, what the court is going to end up seeing, is, at least in the district court, is they're going to see a lot of, as the courts reopen, at least for more evidentiary hearing related issues, I think that the district court's going to have a huge influx of cases where parties have felt that they didn't have the opportunity to be heard on either side. Um, and that that's going to be requests for evidentiary hearings in person in well, August, September, October, as they really expand their hearing ability in person. I mean, it's interesting as lawyers, you know, we're all sort of season, you know, trained to, to be comfortable talking in a room full of people, right? But, you know, it, it does seem like a lot can go wrong if you're on a phone call with 20 or 30 people having your hearing while these people are just sort of there. Um, that seems like a lot to, to take in, uh, very interesting. Um, Ju Judge Christopher, do you mind talking uh, a little bit about the, the process and procedure at the probate and family court? Sure, sure. You know, there are going to be variations from county to county, and I'm not here to talk for any other county. Um, as a general rule, me, I personally have always felt that you, if, that I'm, I'm going to ask up front, did you want an in-person hearing? And if you, if that can't be accommodated at this time, you know, March or whenever it was, um, uh, then what would, do you object to a continuance um, without prejudice, you know, without any findings until, to, you know, until we can manage that? Um, and I actually have not had anybody ask for that, but I have not had that many restraining order hearings. And most of them have been the one-year renewals as opposed to anything else. Um, 
So, uh, but the, the the way it's supposed to be working going forward is that at present, if someone shows up at the building looking to have a restraining order, looking to fill the paperwork out and be heard, and they're present in the courthouse, we're going to hear them uh, in person. And then uh, we're going to do the best we can to accommodate everybody by hearing it virtually if that's acceptable to people. Um, and if it's not, then I think um, we're going to, uh, and I have to look again at the standing order, but I think that um, it's up to us until about August 10th about what we want to do. And then from August 10th, I think we're supposed to hear those in person. Now, I might be wrong about that because, you know, they send me so many things. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure that at least that's what I have in my mind that we're going to be doing. And I I think that um, other people in, in um you know, on uh, in Suffolk have uh, have also felt that um, that an in-person hearing could be accommodated uh, because you know the rights here that are at, at stake um, are significant. For sure. And was now, that was that responsive to what you wanted? Yeah, thank you, Judge. Um, now, uh, what, one thing Irina mentioned, I'm curious about uh, how it plays out in the probate court. Um, Right, it sounds like in the district court you'll get your hearing notice and it'll say on it telephonic hearing. Is that what what sort of notification are folks given in the probate and family court and, and, and what format does it take on? Well, it's kind of funny because the um the I don't I don't know if you mentioned before, but there are there are new COVID nineteen two oh nine A forms, right? And um that were to take the place of prior forms. But on that form, it has um, a place for the telephone call-in, but doesn't really seem to exactly accommodate the Zoom link. Um, so we've made accommodations, you know, by putting the Zoom link somewhere, but, or generally <clears throat> speaking, I'm not actually part of that, that fine granularity. Um, but I think that they get a notice, a regular notice of hearing that has the Zoom link in it. Um, so we can, we can, um, we can accommodate that. Um, but as I say, you know, um, uh, there, there are probably variations, but that the new link, the new form is all about the, about the telephonic. And, and is the, the process in the probate and family court, is that similar, uh, if it's just some other non-domestic violence type of emergency? Or is it a different procedure for those types of, uh, um, you know, a, a, an issue that the court deems a valid emergency, not necessarily a restraining order situation? Is it is it a different process or the same process? Well, if you're asking what happens downstairs, that's that's something that I'm not always fully understanding what goes on, you know, in in the registry fully, especially okay. because I don't. You know, I used to be somebody who would walk around the building, say hi, and talk to people, whatever, and try and get an idea for what's going on in the registry. But that sort of um, interactivity is somewhat discouraged these days. So yeah. uh, it's hard for me to gauge. But I do know that I've heard emergencies of different natures and that we that ultimately if I hear like, I mean, we had a guardianship, you know, where the mother died and the father's part's unknown and the grandmother comes in and, you know, um, where you need to deal some do, do something on on a short notice so before we can figure out um, how to get service and get people going in in this case then you know you're going to do it immediately. And that's the type of thing that could still be done by Zoom or telephone as well. Oh yes, everything. I mean we're hearing everything. Uh, it's just a matter of scheduling it in, right? If it's an emergency, it gets heard sooner or not, but. You know, we're. I think there's nobody on the hall who hasn't done motions and pretrials that were originally scheduled for June. I, I mean, um, March. I think most of us, I hope, ha, I, that I have as well, uh, cleared out our backlog from March anyway, and are working on April while mixing, blending in the cases that are coming in now. So we're hearing things four or five times a day. You know, everybody's hearing cases at least three or four days a week. Um, and then of course, all the scheduling takes up some time too. So I have to set a little aside for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to, thank you, Judge. I appreciate that. I wanted to circle back to one of the things Irina mentioned, which I think is is really important, which is that, and, and, I'll, and I'll open this up to the whole panel. Um, yeah. You know, what, 
let's let's talk for a minute about these issues that come up when you have uh, we can start with a, a 209A restraining order hearing, but maybe we can segue into other emergencies too. But, you know, let's, let's take a minute. Irina mentioned, maybe we could start with you, Irina, since you brought it up. But, you know, let's talk about some of the issues that come up from your perspective and the rest of the panel's perspective when you see uh, a phone hearing or a Zoom hearing um, on these types of cases. I think that the first thing I think, and, and I think this regardless of who I'm representing is, okay, well, how are we going to have a judge assess credibility? Um, it's very hard to do that over the phone. I can only imagine doing that over the phone when you're also dealing with um, multiple parties on the other on the call that aren't even related to the, the action before the court at the same yeah. time. Um, so that is the first thing I think about. The second thing I think about, you know, and in terms of maybe working with my client and whether or not there's going to be an opportunity for testimony with that. Sorry, let me just stick on the credibility issues is I know that as, as myself and several of my colleagues have experienced um, the judge trying to really proceed more on representation, making sure that the timeline of events um, is, is crystal clear from my perspective. And, and that can take a while to go over these. Sometimes these incidents happen very quickly. Um, I know that anybody who sat in probate in family court for five minutes knows that two people could sit in a room together, have a five minute conversation and come out saying that, that the exact opposite thing was said. I mean, it's very common. So really refining your timeline and making sure that, you know, if you're presenting on representation or preparing to present as an evidentiary with eliciting questions that you want to make sure that the timeline between you and your client is clear as a bell. I think that can help in terms of displaying credibility. Um, the second thing I think about is evidence, um, especially I, I can only imagine how many text messages Judge Christopher gets presented on, uh, on any day where there's a restraining order, but documents can be helpful in terms of supporting credibility, supporting a timeline, um, supporting the actual abuse itself, or supporting maybe some of the more um, subtle signs, either of um, what may or may not be considered abuse how am I getting these documents to the judge? How am I making sure that the uh, other party has the opportunity to review these and have an appropriate objection? Is this evidence in and of itself or is this something I'm looking to use for the purposes of hindering the other party's credibility? Um, it, it's really a lot to consider. I, I, think that, I think at the end of the day, what's gonna happen is, is you will try to work as best as you can with the clerk to see what can be provided in advance. Make sure that if there is an opposing counsel, they are, have the opportunity to review everything that you intend to present. If not, I think that, especially from a defendant's perspective, I think you just need to prepare your, your, your client for saying, hey, here's our plan. Here's our plan B for when we find out it's you know telephonic and not Zoom. And here's our plan C for when, we, when the judge gives feedback that, that states that they're, just, they're not able to entertain an evidentiary hearing at this time. And be prepared, having your clients prepared for potentially sorting this out in an in-person hearing sometime in August. And if I may comment from the clinical perspective, just this, you know, issue around credibility, I think for, for survivor victims. And so what we know about folks who experience chronic violence exposure or other kinds of trauma that, you know, obviously it's, um, and when you're thinking about court proceedings, it's a highly anxiety provoking situation to begin with. Um, and when you think about the events and the things that you have to talk about, that just increases your anxiety. And what we know from um, just kind of the literature on chronic violence exposure, IPV, um, and other ways in which trauma can impact one's ability to recall certain incidences um, and to be able to really report information in a linear fashion, which I think sometimes gets associated with or is more or in legal proceedings can be synonymous with credibility, right? So if you're able to recall things in a linear fashion, that means that for, you know, somehow you're more credible um, and reliable. And we know that when, um, individuals are experiencing chronic IPV, that that's one of the things that can really be, be impacted. Um, and there's some, you know, literature that kind of talks about some of the neurobiological 
reasons for that. Um, but I, I think it's important to bring into this conversation, particularly when we're thinking about phone hearings, because then you don't have the ability to see that person and maybe see some of the nonverbals or some of the behavioral ways in which their fear and their anxiety might be um, manifested or might be showing so that if you were in person, you might be able to pick up on those things. Um, but I, I think it's important to bring into this conversation as, as folks are thinking about credibility um, and, and how, what's the best way to proceed when we're thinking about these hearings. So take, picking up on that, if I, if I may, um, and sort of absolutely echoing, what I'm seeing in my practice is a much higher level of anxiety all the way around, which I imagine most family law practitioners and judges and clinicians are seeing, but in particular in helping for folks to prepare for a telephonic hearing. And let's, I agree with you, Arena, that's particularly, um, I think can be particularly challenging, but I think Zoom has a, other challenges to it, including the evidentiary issues that you raised. When I'm speaking with clients, part of what I'm trying to help them do is, given how busy the court is under any circumstance, and I imagine now is no exception, what I'm also trying to help them do is talk about the stuff that does make them afraid. But asking somebody who alleges that they've been victimized by domestic abuse to talk on a telephone, perhaps not in using English as their first language, too. So we've got some very serious issues of access. When someone's on the phone, it's even more intimidating to try to articulate. And then even if English is your first language and there doesn't need to be an interpreter involved, because I feel like the courts are incredibly committed to language access issues and interpreters. But even without that, what I'm hearing is that folks get much more paralyzed being on a phone. And I've spoken to a number of people who've been on phone hearings where they could tell the judge was trying. There was no complaint that the judge wasn't trying, but I can only imagine, of course, we want to hear from you, Judge Christopher, on the phone, even I, as an experienced practitioner. The dynamic in the room is very, very different. And what I'm hearing is folks say that they just blanked on everything, which again, as mm -hmm. Nina just said, is, uh, I would say, a challenge and or a risk factor. And then the other issue is when people are talking on a telephonic hearing, and I know because I've been on a bunch of them, you can't always hear the other party and you can't necessarily hear everything the judge is asking for. And so then that can increase this level of tension just in a very immediate level. Survivors feel terrified to talk about the, the violence to begin with. And then if they feel like a judge is remonstrating them because judges are just trying to run the hearing. So again, these levels of dynamics that really get in the way of the, of the story coming out, if you will, the narrative from both parties. Um, so those are two points I wanted to raise. You know, one of the interesting parts about all of this has been um, just a, a, a complete sort of realignment of our understanding of, of how long things take and what can we do in a day. Yep. Um, yes. And <laughs> So that now, you know, I try to do as, you know, as close to 10 cases a day as I can. And that seems to be not outside. <clears throat> there are other people, I'm sure, who are way outperforming me on numbers. Um, but one of the interesting parts is when you give every case a half hour, and every now and then there'll be a case that's just, you know, a 1A where there's actually nothing wrong with the agreement or something like that, then, um, uh, you know, you, you might go on the shorter end. Uh, and recapture that time in another way. But overall, you can say to people, this is what we have for time. You can act as if there's, for us, there's no other person on this line, generally speaking, unless they bring someone themselves. And again, this is a public hearing, and if somebody wants to bring somebody who isn't going to speak but who is going to be there for that person, that's fine by me. Um, then, uh, you know, then you have, um, and I, again, if it's going to be, if, if what happens is I can tell there's going to be a big, you know, a big conflict over this extension and, and I have a half an hour, then I'm, and that's not going to be sufficient for the moment, then I'm going to say, let's reschedule this for a time when you have two hours in the afternoon or something. So people feel like they have the time. On Zoom, you actually can look at people. And, and um, sometimes you're even, um, you, you feel as though you might be more proximate than you would be in person when somebody's, easily 15 feet away from me and 
and the face can sometimes be a bit of a smudge in comparison to what I have on Zoom. So there are some upsides to it all. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think would be, and from my years in practice, would be difficult is that standing next to your client, um, your client having some sense of when you're going to do the talking, when they're going to do the talking, um, there's a the physical proximity gives that person some sense of um, confidence uh, about what what's going on and and or safety. Uh, when a hearing is over in a courthouse, you're standing with your lawyer and you're going to think, well, say things didn't go your the the plaintiff's way and went the defendant's way, and the plaintiff has feelings about that. They have someone to. Um, um, to talk to about like what are my next steps in terms of I'm not going am I going back to the house with the same person or other things so there are a lot of of, of uh, physical presence that are positive people I think really need that we're not in a position to give them at this time and I can only acknowledge that those are difficulties uh, but on the other hand I do think there are some upsides in terms of um, being able to really have the time to give people a little more time. Uh, than they might otherwise, than, than, you know, you, you might have given them that time, but there would have been those people sitting out in the room waiting to be heard. Thank you, Judge. Judge, what are some of the things, uh, specifically on the phone, uh, well, let, let me ask this first. Are you doing, I know you can only speak for yourself, um, are you doing phone and Zoom or leaning more in one direction than the other? I think we're all doing a bit of a mix some more than others. As you can tell, my the the my court issued laptop is is not up to the task all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so my, so we make sure to mix in some phone hearings so that um, it can recharge its little self and get back on track with being on Zoom. I don't know what exactly all the technical problems are, but I know a lot of people are doing both. Um, now, I prefer to do Zoom in a contested manner. Sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Now, on, on the phones, I mean, that's, I think the, maybe Anne and Irina can jump in, but I think the, you know, although there might be, you know, it's not perfect from their perspective in both mediums, the phone is really the one that I think people are the most concerned with. Is, is that right, Irina and Anne? I think that's probably what I'm seeing in terms of feeling like my client has the opportunity to be heard. Yeah. And again, district court's a little different where it, because it's a little bit of a cattle call, I think it's harder to feel like any one person's getting their, their moment. Yeah. Um, but I know that there are clients that definitely want to make sure they have the opportunity not to necessarily look, their, look the judge in the eye, but kind of to be seen yeah. um, as they're able to articulate their position. So, yeah, and I, I would also say on motions to vacate, which I've done several, um, what I have been told is that it's not an evidentiary hearing because they can't do it via Zoom. And by right. they, I'm talking about the court. And again, no criticisms at all. Just, I, Irina, you and I, I, I'm sure, are quite used to having to help manage our clients' expectations. One of the things I'm running into is, even though I've practiced for a while, so hopefully, and Judge, uh, you can keep your feedback there, but I hope I've learned a few things about how to present to Judge Christopher and or any other judge. Let's hope I have. But there are new tools that I'm learning, especially when it comes to what you were just talking about, Judge, which is even if I debrief with the client, it's different than doing it and showing the forms and being able to see the evidence ahead of time. And as Irina was saying, even if I were to upload, let's say we were to have a Zoom, and I've been practicing and done a lot of Zoom uh, video conference related presentation of evidence. It's still not the same as when the judge may say, can I see that 401 financial statement? Can everybody hold on for a second? And I can say to my client, you know, take a deep breath. The judge is doing what he or she is supposed to do. In a telephonic hearing, all of that is lost, all that nuance. And that's the nuance that I think helps parties um, organize their thinking. And of mm -hmm. course, uh, in a motion to vacate, what I'm also hearing is courts are reluctant to issue a motion to vacate when they can't obtain the kind of evidence that would maybe uh, provide them with more insight or more perspective. And obviously, Judge, I'll let you speak to that, but this is what I'm hearing, that it, they're reluctant to issue an order kicking somebody out of their house during COVID 
which is reasonable. Even if I think that my client can meet the burdening, I understand and try to prepare clients for how serious an action that is COVID related. And I think we, I would love to hear other people's feedback because that's very COVID related. I'd be interested in hearing what um, Irina has to say on that one. Or attorney well, I mean, <laughs> I definitely think that, I mean, I certainly can't speak to being inside the mind of a judge in terms of what they're weighing. But I know that there are a lot of complications that we're looking at during this time period. I know I was speaking with my colleagues earlier. I think up until recently, there weren't even hotels available in Massachusetts. So if somebody's being removed from the home, they might have minimal family contacts here. They might have family contacts here that are in a situation where exposure to people who don't have the ability to quarantine for some reason are increasing their risks such for COVID that, that it almost makes it not worth it. Um, I, again, I don't want to rest in the mind of a judge. I, I, I believe the standard is pretty clear in terms of considerations regarding safety of, of a party or of the children that I would presume that that's probably the, the main focus. But there are all of these other complications that come when someone's being removed from the home in the situation that we're currently in. People might be out of work. So the party being removed from the home might be in a situation where even if a hotel is available and open, that they don't have the, the funds. I mean, it has been hard for a lot of people to to make ends meet with two salaries. And, and, and now you add to that potential, the potential for people who are living more paycheck to paycheck and having their income reduced. And now add to that a second, not even necessarily a second household, but some type of need to support a second residence just so that everybody has a roof over their head pending, even just pending a review period. It's a lot, I think. And, and like I said, I, I would presume the judges are going to have safety as their primary focus. Um, but that's certainly significant, significantly other issues that I would think are on anyone's mind if they feel based on the testimony that it's borderline. But again, I, I, I certainly don't want to speak into somebody else's mindset, but I, I know those are things that I consider every time I review a case in terms of thinking what, um, what a judge may do once we have the opportunity for a full hearing. I, I have to say, again, I haven't had any um, DRPOs. Um, so it's been, in, and which is always interesting to me, we never have as many as you would think, given that the standard is a wee bit different and um, you know, there are people who definitely make um, life very difficult, uh, who are not necessarily, um, you know, posing a risk of imminent serious physical harm. And I think particularly of the active addict or alcoholic who might not actually have any violence, but whose behaviors and um, can be deeply troubling. And when you look at what's going, you know, your ch if your children are there all day long, you know, used to be they went out and lived a life and uh, things were a little different. Now when people are in the house all together, I think it 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 um, may magnify um, how much it impacts or the way in which it's noticeable that it might impact um, children. But, you know, again, I haven't seen them. I certainly uh, would be decidedly unenthusiastic about, um, you know, uh, about trying, I mean, obviously, when you get to that place, this is why I very often try and have counsel talk to each other if we have two counsel to try and figure out what's going to actually happen with this family, right? Where, where are they going? Um, you know, somebody got a mother, somebody got a brother, is there a place they can stay? And those, all those things, all those resources are, um, can be constrained, you know, if you have a high-risk person, if you, you know, if you have immunocompromised mother and you have a job as an essential worker, you know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds like these cases have become a lot, I mean, they were all, always pretty fact intensive, but even more so now, there's even more variables that weren't, didn't even exist pre-COVID, you know, so. Right. And also the issue of, we haven't specifically referenced this and, um, Having represented DCF for a long time and having spoken a fair amount recently to DCF folks, their numbers are different as well. And why is that, right? We, we cannot underestimate, I believe, that 
the and and Nina, your agency has direct experience, so I defer to you. But the the impact on the kids, as you just said, Judge, just the practical reality. Where are people going to be? What is the impact on the kids? Who are the caregivers that the kids have available? What shape are they in, in general? Uh, obviously, around issues of IPV, it's very specific in some ways. But I'm interested, Nina, what are you seeing in terms of how this is impacting kids and their own disclosures of their safety and their well-being? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, right? And whether or not kids are... and survivor victims are in a place where they can actually disclose um, some of these things that that are happening, right? I think that there are, for some kids, um, this is going to be their opportunity to really be able to express that anxiety, that fear, the confusion. I mean, I think you can, we can all imagine if you are a child and you are living in a home or in a situation where there's, you know, violence that's occurring um, and where these are kind of supposed to be, this is supposed to be your sanctuary. This is supposed to be the people that are, you know, there to protect you and help you and keep you safe. Kind of the amount of emotional um, worry and, and challenges that that, that, that can uh, result in, I think is, is in, surmountable um, and just kids really feeling um, destabilized, right? Yeah. And, and not feeling safe. And so I think to the judge's point, right, there used to be, there was school. So kids were, were in school. Yeah. Reporters. And, yeah. Right. And that there were some other folks that kind of, you know, could, could lay eyes on them or, um, you know, if kids were, were feeling, you know, particularly vulnerable or unsafe, they could report to school um, and then there could be some kind of intervening by DCF mm -hmm. and, and other authorities. And I think we're not, we're not necessarily seeing that mm -hmm. right now. Um, but I would say that, I just you know, basically say there are people who care about them. Other people who care about them mm -hmm. is a profoundly mm -hmm. important thing to a child, but that, that they're all like, we're in parentheses. We're not near those pe the teacher who really cares. But carry on, I didn't mean to interrupt too much. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, those, that's exactly right, right? So some of those things that we know um, can be real protective factors in helping kids with you know, resilience and their emotional and physical well-being that they're just not there right now um, in the midst of COVID. And you know, from, from our perspective, that can put kids at, harm for, you know, other kinds of more serious psychological issues in terms of anxiety, depression, um, and, you know, emotional regulation issues. Nina, how do you, when in, in this situation where you don't know if uh, there is domestic violence happening, I mean, you know, I feel anxious every day now, <laughs> which I didn't feel pre-COVID, and I'm sure everyone feels heightened levels of anxiety you know, I can't even imagine how my kids or other people's kids, you know, are coping with, you know, forget about just in like a plain, you know, no issue family pre-COVID, like how they're feeling just dealing with every day now. I mean, how do you, how do you, you know, one of the things you look at to sort that, I mean, that seems like a very challenging issue now. Yeah, I think that right now um, we operate on the assumption, I mean, there's always kind of that universal approach, right, to just assume um, that, you know, there could be anything and anything that is occurring um, that could potentially impact a child's well-being um, and operating from there. I think it is as we've been talking earlier, it's a little more challenging to assess more directly um, whether or not there's violence happening in the home. Um, and so we are focused more so on the, the universal education pieces, um, providing you know, general resources um, to families and working on general just overall coping skills yeah. um, and help, you know, in helping people um, in, in that way um, to help kind of, you know, mm -hmm. de-stress. Um, and I think focusing on those ways and when we can't, you can never reassure anything. Um, and I think right now in the midst of COVID, that's even more challenging because there's so many things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to focus on those areas in which we can 
control um, and ways that we can, um, I think, strengthen, right, those relationships that children have with those primary adults that that are in their that are in their life and so thinking about ways to really support support mm -hmm. that relationship um, and then the other piece so right now we do have a partnership with um, the Massachusetts probate and family court um, a pilot project specifically with Suffolk and Middlesex County um, and so if there are judges who are hearing cases where there's been some allegation of violence exposure, um, high conflict, or, you know, some other issue in which um, a child's well-being or, or development may potentially be impacted, um, that courts, those courts can directly refer to our program. And we have a dedicated team of clinicians um, who can work specifically with, with those families who are who are court involved i'm glad you mentioned that um so yes so for that program it is um birth to around 13 years so how do you get age. involved in is that something the court does unilaterally or is that something that you have to request how do you get involved in that program mm -hmm. so um a judge could um refer the family to the program um, if you are, you know, an attorney or someone who is working with the family, um, you could certainly ask for a referral to the program. Um, you could also just call um, our program directly. It's Child Witness to Violence Project, and we are at Boston Medical Center. And so you could call our program directly and ask to be connected with the Child Safety Project. Um. Judge Christopher, I want to I, I want to do some I, Q and A. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, and then I also just want to make it um, clear because I think just make sure that there's no um, confusion around exactly the kind of services that we are providing. And so, it is mental health um, clinical support services for kids um, again to kind of help them with coping um, in the midst of some kind of chronic stress. We are not providing um, custody evaluations. We're not um, making recommendations around custody, visitation, right. or anything like that. And um, all of the standard regulatory procedures regarding mental health services in terms of confidentiality, HIPAA privilege, all of those um, mm -hmm. stand and, and are, are in place. And so it really is a, a service um, to kind of help support the child. Yeah, it's, it's not part, in other words, it's not part of a litigation. It's not like a guardian ad litem investigation. It's really no. just a support that's available for folks who are in need of those services. Right? Exactly, yes. That's a great clarification, very important. Um, we, uh, we're running low on time. Uh, we do have some questions, but I wanna, there's two points that I really do wanna get back to with Judge Christopher quickly, um, sort of, uh, that we, that we sort of moved on from, it's fine. I just wanna circle back. So um, Judge Christopher, if, if you could, just uh, we'd love to get your feedback on these points. So, um, and I just asked Nina this, but, but what are the things, you know, how are you looking at these cases differently now in light of COVID? Um, what are the things that, you know, any ways you're thinking differently about them because of, of the, the, the world being a different place now? Um. Not necessarily. The, the, you know, the legal standard remains the same. And if you've met your 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 if you've met the threshold, you have. And if you haven't, you haven't. That's an important uh, point. Yeah. Right. And but the circumstances uh, of your specific situation may be different. And I certainly would bring the the lens of of your specific situation. You know, of, this, of the litigant specific situation, which are you know part of the facts that you need to look at in order to make a determination in any event um, in in making findings. You know, so obviously, um, you know, I've had I've had some cases where things came up where, for example, you know, a litigant traveled to visit family in you know in a hot spot, and then there was discussion about that. For example, about about the appropriateness or inappropriateness of expecting to come back and and um, quarantine, but with the family, right? Mm -hmm. Or things like that. But generally speaking, 
with domestic violence, I haven't had, or domestic abuse of any kind, I haven't really had um, anything that about COVID that made it different in kind. Oh, it's just a different station of the same. And, and going I, back, thank you, Judge, and going back to the, the virtual stuff, are, are there certain things that you can share with us um, that you think uh, are helpful to attorneys listening, you know, how they can be effective in getting their positions across by phone or by Zoom that they may not be considering? You know, things that you've found were most effective when you've done, done those hearings? Um, well, because of everything being a little bit, um, you know, a work in progress, you know, as, as each phase comes in and as we change the staffing models and all the rest of it and the ways we do things, right? I mean, like Suffolk questions is now not what it used to be and all the rest of it. So it's hard to, I think it's hard for everybody a little bit to keep track of what it, how you're supposed to get something so that I get to see it. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest that you have your entire file with you. And if at all possible, you have it such that there's anything you expect me to look at, it's in a PDF format and you can send it to me right then and there. Excuse me. Uh, and <clears throat> just about to sneeze tonight. So anyway, um, and then, you know, that, uh, and, 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 the, and also to make sure that we're clear um, about any objections you have to anything that's being proffered um, by either side, I'd like to make sure that, you know how it is, I'm always saying, okay, go exchange your documents and come back in half an hour. Not something that's easy to do here. So if you have anything that you expect me to look at, the other side should have seen it before the onset of the hearing. Otherwise, I may um, demur at accepting it because mm -hmm. the other side has issues to process it. That seems even more important to be aware of, especially when you're in an emergency situation. Presumably, things are happening much quicker than they might otherwise. Yes, I would assume so. Um, all right. So thank you, Judge. Um, let me do, we've got a handful of questions here. Um, let me try and, and, and I guess if, it, if it's obvious who it's directed for, we'll do that. Otherwise, we'll just open it up to the panel. Um, the first question here uh, is, in the, uh, pro, if a probate and family court order says no one-year renewals when the hearing is not in person, only until in-person hearing, um, district court does give one-year orders. What is actually happening in the probate and family court? I believe that the standing order addresses that. Um, so I have a standing order, 2-20 uh, amended on July 1st. Do you, mm -hmm. have you all seen that? Yes, yeah. And so um, it's, I, I hope I'm not giving out any trade secrets here, but uh, there, there's a section on restraining orders, and it says that um, all protection orders issued at a hearing after notice during the pendency of the standing order, which was from March, this is amended version, so it's from March forward, which were not heard in person, may be issued only until such date at which the court can schedule an in-person hearing. I've had people waive their right on that. You know, I mean, like, I want to get it over with and I want to deal with it now and I, I don't want to have to come back later. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that's that's their option. Um, but that's, I think that might be why you're hearing that the probate court won't do it. And, and, and this order is referring to time between the, I guess, the issuance of the initial to, to the in-person hearing, not to the court's ability to issue a, a one, two, three, whatever, how many years restraining order, right? Right. It's that it's that you, you if it, that you're entitled to be seen in person. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, if the if the case was initiated during COVID emergency, you're entitled to a hearing in person at whatever time that time is going to come when we hear when those that'll happen, and I assume that will be after, I want to say April 10th, but um, uh, maybe it's just, I can't remember exactly. And I, and I think your point, Judge, was that if, if someone waives that, the court then could issue an order 
for you know however long of a renewal that the court deems appropriate at that point correct well whatever i said before he waived before he or she waived that right right i'm going i'm going to give a sense of what i'm talking about here right so I, if i if i'm not i wouldn't ask somebody to waive it without a sense of knowing of whether or not we're talking about one year or we're talking about more uh but no order issued during covid initially the issue during COVID can be for more than a year in any event, right? Because 209A only allows you to do the initial extension for one year or less. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so it couldn't be for more than that. But I, you know, and again, I'm, even after all, all said and done, and um, you know, if you, if somebody uh, gave me a, um, uh, an argument to make it for less than a year on account of, of the circumstances under which we're operating, I might be amenable to, you know, I certainly would be hearing it and, and, and weighing it on its merits. Um, Point. Um, thank you, Judge. Okay, so the next question here, if, if the attorney and or litigant on one side requests a virtual hearing, uh, age or medical issues present uh, present greater risk Will the judge allow for virtual hearings in 209A proceedings now and going forward? And I think the answer to this is yes. Uh, right, Judge? We, we sort of talked about this earlier. Well, if, if, say for, if for example, the plaintiff is immunocompromised and the defendant is um, ready to be in person, I'm not going to prevent the, I've had different feelings about it, but as it happens, okay. I believe that the standing order may also address that, that, that essentially um, if somebody wants, if a, the, the defendant wants to put it off to a time when there's in person and is willing to appear in person, the fact that the other person wants to appear virtually can be accommodated, but I'm not going to prohibit the defendant from appearing in person if he or she so chooses. I, so in other words, the defendant can show up on, you know, date certain and you would zoom in or phone in the plaintiff. Yes. I think that would make sense. Yes. Great. Okay. Here's the next question. Or vice versa. If the defendant wanted to appear virtually and the plaintiff wanted to appear in person, whichever way it went. And I think there's an important practice point there. You know, if client, if, if as lawyers, if we're aware that that's happening, I mean, you do have to, you really have to talk to your client and make sure they understand what that, you know, what that, you know, that means when one side is actually in the courthouse and, and you're not. And I think it's an, it's, it's something that's critical for as a client management uh, item. What I've seen so far when I'm speaking with clients about that, Dave, um, is, and I don't know about you, Arena, but um, they're relieved at the concept of not having to be in the courthouse. Even though they're in, in the courthouse, there are safety measures uh, that are there to keep people apart. And hopefully if people are represented and or have family or friends there, they're gonna help them. But what I'm hearing is that if they're able to appear virtually, they're less afraid, even though we've talked about some of the obstacles in presenting your narrative and your experience. I don't know if you're hearing that arena, but I am definitely I'm hearing relief at not having to be there if they're worried about their mother that's living with them that's immunocompromised and they're afraid of the person against whom they're making the allegations, that kind of thing. I think I'm probably hearing it um, almost the opposite with regards specifically to emergency related hearings where, you know, the, the need for potentially presenting evidence or presenting some type of testimony is, is so sensitive. Uh, most other hearings that I'm dealing with, everyone seems thrilled at the idea that they're not paying their attorney to sit in court for three hours before they get heard. Um, but with regards to the emergencies themselves, um, I, I just think, I think a lot of the times the sense that they have the opportunity to look the judge in the eye and, and be heard is really is really important to a lot of clients that I've been speaking with. So obviously that hasn't necessarily been happening at this time, but I know a lot of the clients that I've been dealing with specifically with regards to restraining orders are very eager just to have their opportunity to feel like they had a proper hearing. Um, COVID issues included and, and, and discussing ways that they can maybe be more responsible and safe in doing so, um, but still looking to, to feel like they had an opportunity for a full hearing. Thank you. So I'm, get, I'm getting flagged that we've got to wrap up, um, but I really appreciate everybody uh, joining us today. I really appreciate the panel. 
uh, volunteering their time and, and their willingness. And, and again, I'll state for the record that, that Judge Christopher was, was on time. There were some technical issues. Uh, luckily, we were able to, to push through those because it was great having her on the line. Um, thank you, everybody, for participating. Um, I really appreciate it. So next week, um, Tuesday, uh, the 28th at 1 p.m., we're going to be doing another seminar, and it's going to be uh, focused on parenting coordinating appointments, um, talking about the standing order, uh, talking about the Bauer case. We've got Francine Gardikis, who is one of the attorneys on that on that case. Uh, we've also got um, John Baker, who is a psychologist, guardian ad litem, and we've also got Tony Pelusi, who's also who's a life coach, attorney, and parenting coordinator, and they. The, the whole panel has a lot of great experience about uh, parent coordinating when it is and isn't appropriate to bring into a case. And they're gonna talk about um, their perspective on how it plays into uh, COVID and, and some of the custody disputes or parenting issues that have come up uh, the last few months. So I think it's gonna be a really good panel. So if you have an opportunity, feel free to log in for that. Um, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, counsel. Thank you.